Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. We're going to have one Bible reading, but it's going to be read in three languages today, which I enjoyed very much indeed in our first service. And I think it will give us a wonderful picture of the fact that God is building together and bringing together people from every tribe and nation and language. Jinping, thank you very much. Today's reading is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. It's on the page of 1174 in the Pew Bible. It's page 1174. <laughs> 有基督耶稣自己为房角石，各房靠他联络得合适，渐渐成为主的圣殿。你们也靠他同被建造，成为神借着圣灵居住的所在。Vroeger waren jullie vreemdelingen en hoorden jullie niet bij het volk van God, maar dat is veranderd. Jullie horen er nu wel bij. Jullie zijn Gods kinderen samen met alle andere christenen. Alle christenen samen vormen een eenheid, de heilige kerk van Christus. Je kunt het vergelijken met een gebouw. Het fundament van het gebouw is dan de boodschap van de apostelen en de profeten. Jullie zijn de stenen in de muren. En de belangrijkste steen die het hele gebouw op zijn plaats houdt, dat is Jezus Christus. Hij zorgt ervoor dat de kerk groeit. En dat God zelf in de kerk aanwezig is door de heilige geest. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Heavenly Father, we are ever mindful that when we gather Uh, together in your name, what a great privilege it is. And so, Lord, we would ask, even this morning, that you might speak to us, that you would give us ears to hear. In your precious name we ask. Amen. A good friend in Goose has a heart for street children in Tanzania. And a few years back, he began spending time with a a bunch of boys who lived about five miles outside of his village. He he would travel out to them regularly, and he he would spend the day with them. He would feed them. He'd be a father to them, really. And and he would tell them stories about Jesus. One day, he got in his van to head uh, back home. uh, And uh, the boys, what they would normally do is they would sort of follow the van, and then they would sort of wave, and then they would drop off. But on this occasion, rather than drop off, after a couple of hundred yards, they kept following. Now, he couldn't drive terribly quickly because of the pothole road, and they followed him all the way back to his village. He got out of his, his van, and he turned to the boys and said, what are you doing? And the leader of the pack stepped forward and said, Ngusa, now we love the stories of the Bible so much. Can we stay with you tonight? Well, he panicked. You know, it's one thing going out to the slums and, and being a father to these glue-sniffing little boys. It's a very different thing having them in his own village. He said he could already feel the curtains twitching from his neighbors. He went inside and he spoke to his wife, who, who happened to be called Happiness. What a lovely name. 
And he explained the situation to her. And then she said to him, Engusa, do we understand grace? Welcome them into the family. And that night, 16 little boys slept on the kitchen floor. And it was the beginning of the Tanzania Rescue Orphanage. And today, they have 97 little boys. Now, I trust that we have uh, the book of Ephesians there open in front of us. And it's very interesting how this little word grace repeats itself again and again throughout the letter. And Paul opens with it there in chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace to you. And he peppers the whole of this letter with it. He needs to. So the Jewish converts in Ephesus have no love for their Gentile neighbors, many of whom are getting converted. See, it's all right to do business with the Gentiles, to trade with them, but you're always to keep them at arm's length. And now Paul is saying to them in this letter, welcome them into the family. See, that is God's plan for the church. You see, he wants it to be made up of people from all different backgrounds and nations and cultures, worshipping as a family. But this letter here reminds us that it is not always easy to welcome people in who are not like us. People who we would not naturally feel at home with. And I'm not just talking about Leeds United fans. Now, have you ever really considered how uncomfortable for the Jews Paul's request is? Now, these Gentiles, they had no religious background. They were separated from God. They were excluded from the citizenship of Israel. They were strangers to the covenant. And quite frankly, they are without hope. They were pagans who had been worshipping up until recently in the local temple there, the temple of Artemis. It's hardly surprising that we find here in Ephesus an attitude of, okay, they can come in, but we, we don't want these Gentiles disturbing things. You know, they're being welcomed in, but not wholeheartedly. And clearly, the, the Gentile converts are just as wary of them. No, they are Jews after all. And sadly, we see both had begun to retreat behind their cultural walls. No, they're in the same church, but not really mixing. So what does Paul do? Well, he reminds them of the gospel. The gospel of grace. The basis of our friendship and fellowship. There, chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Now the gospel is the great leveler, it's the great unifier. Now we love the gospel, don't we? We love grace. At least we love the idea of it. It's sometimes harder to put into practice. I'm reminded of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, Jesus there is addressing a, addressing a group of respectable religious people. They all know their Bibles, and yet they've intellectualized their faith. Oh, they would be very good at telling you about the Old Testament law, but not so good at putting the spirit of the Old Testament law into practice. 
And you remember that Jesus says, if someone wants to sue you, take your tunic and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. If someone uh, says to you, go, uh, go a mile, Jesus says, go an extra mile with them as well. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek too. You think, says Jesus to the crowd, you've understood the scriptures, that you've understood grace. Have you? Have you really? Have you fully experienced the grace of God in your life so that your instinct is to surprise people with grace, to go the extra mile? You see, grace will take us to places that we don't expect. And look here, what the gospel of grace has done for Jew and Gentile. Now Paul says there, chapter 2, verse 14, do you know that wall in the temple that says, Gentiles, stay out upon penalty of death? Jesus has torn it down. Jesus has destroyed that dividing wall of hostility. He has reconciled the two of you, verse 16, by putting to death the hostility that existed between you. I was uh, greatly touched this week of a story of reconciliation I came across. We actually have our own uh, World Mission Sunday today back in All Souls. And our speaker is from Rwanda. And he lost over 100 relatives in the 1994 genocide. And I heard this story about Rosaria. Uh, she'd, uh, she'd been left for dead in a pile of bodies. And yet, driven by the gospel, she subsequently goes and seeks out the killer of her sister. And she goes and forgives him. They'd previously been uh, neighbors in the same uh, village. And the description of this is rather rem- it's remarkable. It's very, very moving. And he says that in you forgiving me, I have been healed. She has surprised him with grace. Rwanda is now called an uncharted case study in forgiveness. And driven by the gospel, Christian Tutsis have surprised Hutus with grace. And slowly, over the years, it has been reunited into one nation. And the apostle Paul is saying, Jesus has reconciled us has reconciled two cultures who were formerly enemies. But he's saying more than that. He's saying that he has created in himself one new humanity out of the two, verse 15. One body, verse 16. Back there at the end of chapter 1, you remember, Paul tells us that God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. You see, it's Christ's intention to create in himself one new body of all nations with himself as the head. So what does this one new body look like? What does that mean in practice? What does it mean for us as a church? Well, to help us understand the church as one body, Paul helpfully gives us here three distinct pictures here in verses 19 to 22. And immediately we see the church is God's kingdom. In verse 
19, we read, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens. Paul says here that we used to be foreigners, those who did not belong, and aliens, those who were out of place. And it's true for all of us, isn't it? Before we knew Jesus. Now, however, we are citizens. A citizen is one who belongs to a certain place. And Paul actually uses the very same Greek word that he used to describe his citizenship to Rome in Acts chapter 22. But now he writes of a greater citizenship. He says that our citizenship is in heaven, that is where we belong, because we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You see, also, because of what Jesus has done, we are, verse 19, fellow citizens with God's people. You see, like all God's people throughout history, we are part of a better country, of a heavenly city. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters because, as with any citizenship, it means we have certain privileges. You know, as citizens of God's kingdom, our king has promised to provide everything that we need. To protect and keep us. To hear our prayers. To meet us where we are at. And we are needed to know that King Jesus is there for us, watching over us, guarding us, leading us, hearing our prayers. As citizens, though, we also have certain responsibilities. So as citizens of God's kingdom, we are to seek first the kingdom of God. We are to live as faithful representatives of that kingdom in all and in everything that we do and say. Out there tomorrow morning when we go on to our front lines, into our workplaces, into our schools, we are to be the faithful presence of Jesus. Now the church is God's kingdom. But God doesn't operate like you and me. Now he brings Jews and Gentiles into the same church. It was a time when Rome dominated the world. Everywhere you turned, there were Roman soldiers, Roman roads and Roman gods. Roman culture was everywhere. And it was deeply offensive to the Jews, Christians or not. And now these, these Gentiles have invaded their churches and they're supposed to be happy with that. You know, in the same way, God brings people into his kingdom in such a way that it can make you and me feel uncomfortable. And why does God do that? Because he is God and it pleases him. Yet there is a greater reason. Frank Lloyd Wright was the most influential architect of his day. And he did things in architecture that on the face of it shouldn't have worked. He put stuff together that at first glance didn't seem to match. 
And his most famous house is called Falling Water in Pennsylvania. The house that protrudes out over a cliff edge and there's a river that runs through and underneath the house. It's quite remarkable, actually. And Lloyd Wright was into organic architecture, using what was there rather than destroying and starting from scratch. And when designing the house, there were these four huge boulders in the way. And instead of sort of clearing uh, the site and blasting out those enormous boulders, Frank Lloyd Wright, he integrated the boulders into the design of the home. He used one of the boulders as a a table in the living room and another for the fireplace. And he built the boulders into the design of the house in in a spectacular way. And Falling Water is known today throughout the world as, as his signature piece. It, it witnesses his genius. It shouldn't have worked, but it does. In a similar way, God, as, as the architect of the church, has taken something that seems incongruous. And people from all ranges of cultures and ethnic groups and backgrounds, and he has integrated them into something that is harmonious and beautiful. The church. It shouldn't work. But when it does, it displays the manifold wisdom of God to the world. It's a witness to God's genius. So the church is God's kingdom. The church is also God's family. Look again there at verse 19. You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. The metaphor changes and becomes more intimate. You see, a kingdom is one thing. A household or a family is an altogether different thing. See, in Jesus Christ, Jews and Gentiles find themselves more than fellow citizens under his rule. They are together children in his family. See, as Christians, we are to be a new kind of family. We are to form a new kind, a new quality of community, a place of safety, of refuge, of belonging, of unity. A unity rooted in the Trinitarian family. Now we see that later there at the beginning of chapter 4. A unity that is inspired by the unconditional love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit who have dwelt together in perfect harmony and tranquility for all eternity. That is to be our inspiration. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And it's God's plan that through this unity within the church, this unity in diversity, chapter 3, verse 10, that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. In other words, and do listen to this, God's power would be demonstrated to the world by the way Christians do cross-cultural family. Now this moment in history when the church finally understood its role and the greater purpose of God to reach the world has been defined by theologians as the Ephesian moment. 
And it is generally agreed that this Ephesian moment in the early church did not last long. The destruction of the Jewish state in AD 70, the scattering of the Jewish church, and quite frankly, the sheer success of the Gentile mission saw a swift end to it. The church soon became monocultural again. It became as overwhelmingly Hellenistic as it had been overwhelmingly Jewish. And yet, there are an increasing number of scholars and and Christian social commentators who believe the Ephesian moment is here again. They see uh, parallels with the early church. So, for example, we increasingly share a universal language. In the New Testament, of course, it was Greek. Today, English is a second language for more people in the world than any other language. Uh, Discovery 8 astronaut uh, uh, Sultan uh, bin Salman al-Saud, speaking about the shared language of English, made this comment. He said, The first day from space, we all pointed to our countries. The third or fourth days, we were pointing to our continents. By the fifth day, we were aware of only one earth. It's also plain for all of us to see that the world we live in is growing smaller. It's changing rapidly and becoming more diverse socially than at any time before. I know the Lord is literally shaking up the globe. Increasingly, we live, don't we, in this global village. Increasingly, the world is on our doorsteps. Increasingly, mission agencies are no longer just sending agencies, but they are also receiving agencies. As different churches around the UK identify international groups on their doorsteps that they would like to reach with the gospel. So missioners are coming from around the world to help UK churches do so. See, the Great Commission is being fulfilled right here, right now, on our doorsteps. Uh, Just before I I set out yesterday afternoon, I I quickly googled Sheffield. Uh, I'm sure you know this, but did you know that you're one of the most culturally diverse cities in the UK? Currently, you have more than 120 languages spoken in your schools, over 100 different nationalities represented in this city. Terribly exciting. And where is their family? Where is their clear gospel witness? The Apostle Paul reminds us in Galatians that we have been adopted as sons and daughters. And the truth of this has incredible implications. It means uh, that God's love for us is certain. It means that we have a, a glorious inheritance waiting for us. It means also that we are to care for one another, for brothers and sisters from all different ethnic groups and social backgrounds. In the the summer at All Souls, uh, we put on a a number of different trips for our international friends. And a few years back, we had a a day trip in Windsor, and that gave me an opportunity to speak to uh, some of our international students and uh, I was walking with one student, Chaddy, who was from Africa, and he was talking generally to me about the way that we care for our international students and and, and how they find life studying and living here in the UK. And then he asked me, in a very unassuming sort of way, do you ever think about their family? 
I, I sort of muttered something about their family being in different uh, countries. And then he stopped and he said to me, No! Johnny, you are their brother. You are their family. To be absolutely honest with you, I was absolutely gobsmacked. Not least at the tone with which he spoke to me. <laughs> but at that moment, it struck me how, how important, what the responsibility, if you like, was for the British church to love God's people from other countries. I was drawn into the conversation. And then he told me this. He said, you know, that only one in ten international students, in people who come from an international background, have a British friend. And then he said, he said, only one in 15 have ever been into a British home. Now, at that time, I, I was heading up our student ministry, and, and we set out together as a, as a, as a student body to, to, to surprise our brothers and sisters from different countries with grace. So we would meet them at the airport, we'd find them accommodation, and we'd go out of our way to welcome them into our homes and feed them. So the church is God's kingdom. The church is God's family. The church is also God's temple. Now when Paul mentions here the word temple there in verse 21, uh, the temple that people knew anything about in Ephesus, of course, was the temple of Artemis. It was, it was spectacular. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It had these incredible marble columns, 60 foot high and so forth. And that is what the people almost certainly were thinking of. And yet Paul says the church is God's temple. Now it may be that the, the more sophisticated members of the, of the Ephesus church, possibly some of the, the Jewish members, uh, had in mind when it said that, that the temple in Jerusalem you know, the temple had, after all, been the focal point of, of Israel's history, history, their identity for over a thousand years. And I guess they may have been wondering if, if, Jesus, if, if as Jesus had hinted, uh, that there would be a new temple. But what does the Apostle Paul mean? Now, in the, the past uh, 20 years or so, I have been making attempts at cross-cultural ministry. And I'm not talking about reaching internationals, I'm talking about reaching southerners in London. In Ponty, where I come from, they'll talk about the fact that, ah, Johnny, he works for Posh Church now, down in London. But one of the perks of working for the Posh Church, if you like, is, is the beautiful All Souls Church building that was designed by John Nash. But is All Souls Church any more the temple of God than my home church in Pontefract? Is Christ Church Forward any more the temple of God than the underground church in China that meets in a home? Is that any less the temple of God? See, these buildings are no more the church than Bramall Lane is the home of Sheffield United. Or Hillsborough is the home of Sheffield Wednesday fans. See, this building here is where you happen to worship. But if it burns down tomorrow, or if we find ourselves no longer welcome in the Church of England, we still have a church. You're the church. And Christ's church, forward, sits in this building this morning. But tomorrow it will spread out all over Sheffield and the north of England. 
See here, Paul spells out to us that God is not building a physical temple. He's building a new humanity, a new body. And what a vision he gives. It's international, it's diverse and worldwide. So a geographically localized center would not be appropriate. Its foundation there, verse 20, is built on the teaching of God's word, of the apostles and the prophets. Its cornerstone that holds the building together is Jesus himself. And the whole structure of the temple is built of individual stones, of individual converts, of people like you and me. And notice here how union with Jesus is indispensable. See there, verse 21. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together. Interestingly, the the apostle uh, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, when he also develops this picture of the church as a a building, uses the same idea of, of living stones being added or built into the temple, built into Jesus, if you like. Now, both writers capture this idea of a growing temple structure that rises across the world as new and living stones are added to it in Jesus. It's a beautiful picture of God building a cosmopolitan temple from all the people on this planet. It's a rich and a diverse. It transcends culture and prejudice. It is a new humanity. I'm I'm astonished by the hunger many internationals show for the gospel and the way that God is building the temple before our very eyes. Now, a few years ago, all part of surprising our international community with grace, we put on a meal in the church on a Friday evening, and we invited friends, and someone brought along a couple of Iraqis. And as you do, certainly in my role, I would walk around and I would sort of greet people and and welcome them. And I came across uh, this chap called Amir. And Amir went out of his way just to say how impressed he'd been with the welcome and the hospitality. And in particular, he highlighted two people from our congregation who who had had welcomed them in. And quite honestly, they'd not done anything particularly dramatic. They'd simply met Amir and his friend at the door and they'd taken them and sat them down and they sat with them and had a meal. At the, end of the, at the end of the evening, Amir came looking for me again. And he just wanted to say how impressed he was with the way that he had been welcomed. And then he turned to me and he said, tell me more about this person called Jesus. It doesn't happen very often, does it? And I had the opportunity to, to share the gospel with Amir. And then he went off into the night. I was never sure whether I'd see him again or not. On Monday morning, had a phone call from the guy who brought Amir. And he was, he was struggling to get his words out. He, he, was, he was clearly upset and eventually he calmed down and he explained to me that, that the night before they'd been out with friends in a restaurant and, and Amir had had a massive asthma attack and died on the spot. And what do you do with that? I was absolutely devastated. I didn't know what to do with myself. I didn't know who to speak to. Naomi, my wife, wasn't there. I, I, I mooched around for a few hours and eventually Naomi came home with my, my youngest son 
Ted, who was, who was quite young at the, at the time. And I began to explain to her how Amir had come on Friday evening and, and what had happened, and I had a chance to speak to him about the gospel. And then my little son, Ted, turned around and said, oh, how kind Jesus is, that he would bring Amir to know him, to become a Christian, before he took him home. Now, Amir is a reminder to us of how important the urgency of the gospel is. But he's also a reminder to us of how important our welcome is. I feel absolutely certain if that couple from the church had not welcomed him and blessed him and shown him and surprised him with grace that he would never have come up to me and asked me that question. Tell me about Jesus. It's a reminder for all of us that we all have a part to play in building this temple. You see, the world is on our doorsteps. God is building his kingdom. God is building his family. God is building his temple. Now, what would it look like for Christ Church Forward to surprise your international neighbors and community with grace? Amen.